Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. This is our Sunday School Hour for March 12th, 2023. And we are in Ecclesiastes again. And uh, we're going to be looking at, of course, a different passage of Scripture. This is part of what is known in the Bible as wisdom literature. And, of course, we could all use more wisdom. You're never quite wise enough, and probably we're never as wise as we actually think we are. Um, I think it's in Proverbs. It says, every man is wise in his own opinion. And I take that to mean we all kind of consider ourselves to be a little more wise than we probably really are. And we never quite get wise enough, do we? Uh, maybe in heaven uh, that'll be the case, but not here on earth. And wisdom is not really just a matter of, of age because we know some old people who are fools and we know some young people who are pretty wise. So that's, it's not always with chronology, but chronology or the number of birthdays you have, it really does seem to help because those things mean life experiences. For example, if we think about the life of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, given that gift of wisdom by God, uh, you see a different aspect of Solomon when you read Song of Solomon. Obviously in there, he's a, he's a young man. And then when you get to Proverbs, you find that he is probably more of a middle-aged man. He's writing the book of Proverbs to impart wisdom to his son and to prepare his son to be a king. Now, Rehoboam didn't apply those things, but he could have and he should have. And you get that from uh, Solomon. And then you uh, get the idea that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is an older man and he's looking back on some things and giving wisdom from the experience of a lifetime, both, both good and bad. And so we all need to learn, we all need to grow, but we need to have wisdom to know how to apply those things. And uh, I would like for you to think of wisdom as not just being the accumulation of time or knowledge, but the ability to understand those things in light of what the Word of God says and how to apply those things and to even teach those things to um, other people. See what I mean? And so uh, we don't want to be a wise fool or anything like that or a knowledgeable fool. We want to be able to really um, exercise and impart wisdom. Um, James chapter 1 says that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God and he gives it liberally. That's really the only liberalism. Well, I like liberal giving, and I like liberal wisdom. That's about all of liberalism I like. Now, let's set this up. Isolation is usually not pleasant. And we'll say usually in there. There may be some times when it is kind of nice and there may be some people who like it better than others. But as a general rule, it's not pleasant. Um, we can illustrate that, for example, if they put you in prison and you're in solitary confinement, the testimony I've heard from prisoners is that's the worst, that it, it begins to work on you after a while. People go crazy after a while in solitary confinement, and uh, so it makes prison harder. Uh, I think about during the time when the COVID restrictions were on and people were just sort of itching to be out and around people, to not have to wear the mask, to not have the restrictions. We were tired of just kind of being in our house. Isolation is not always a good thing. And then I think about being um, exiled. Like the Apostle John was exiled 
by Rome to the Isle of Patmos. Can you imagine just being alone on an island and away from your family, away from friends, away from culture <coughs> and all of that kind of stuff? And so we do better in relationships. And when I think about being on an island, I'm of the age where I think of Gilligan's Island, you know, no phone, no light, no motor car, not a single luxury like Robinson Crusoe, as primitive as can be. Isn't that silly how our minds work? But uh, those kind of things make it difficult. They make it tough. We just do better together. In fact, they've done studies where they have taken people working individually and then uh, people working together, and they get more done when they work together generally, if they're not goofing off or anything. But there's a synergy that kind of maximizes our potential, and that's the way that uh, this works. Now, when we talk about getting a companion, I think we uh, automatically go to marriage, and it certainly can include marriage, but I don't think it's limited to marriage. I don't think this passage is only for married people, but um, I think um, we, we need to understand that while not everyone is supposed to be married, okay, everyone is supposed to function in relationship. We, we've got a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We've got a relationship with the scriptures, of course, as we read it and as it instructs our life and changes us and sanctifies us. We have a relationship with other believers in the church, and that may go on to marriage or it, it, it may not. So it's not um, necessarily talking about marriage, but it would include that. Does that make sense? And so uh, no one should live in isolation. And here are the last two words, please hear me, by choice. No one should live in isolation by choice. It's just not wise. People do stupid things when they are isolated from other people. So let's read our text, Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 12. Little wisdom here for us. All of us need that, right? And it says, then I returned and I saw vanity, that means emptiness. Think of uh, like a little kid's uh, soap bubble that they blow and then it pops and there's you know, no trace of it there. Um, that's what that word vanity means, just empty. So I returned and I saw vanity or emptiness under the sun. Verse 8, there is one alone without companion, and he has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asked, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? And the word deprive there gives us the idea this is a negative, not a positive thing. This is not somebody who is accumulating wealth for a good reason, a positive reason. This is um, somebody who is actually depriving themselves. And I would uh, suggest that they are depriving themselves of relationships. Okay? They could, but they don't. They could, but they don't, okay? So, uh, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity or emptiness and a grave misfortune. It's not good at all is what Solomon is saying. Nothing good about it. Verse 9, two are better than one 
because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Verse 11, again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. I'm assuming in a life-threatening type situation. But how can one be warm alone? Verse 12, though he may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, an enemy, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And of course, in that last part, the threefold cord, it reminds me of the story of um, an Indian chief who went to a Civil War general and handed him one arrow and said, break that arrow. And the general just broke it without any problem. And then the Indian chief said, uh, handed him two more and said, break three arrows. And he had a little bit of trouble doing that, but he eventually did it. And then he handed him a whole uh, sorry to say stack, but a whole group of arrows and he couldn't break it at all. Kind of like trying to tear a telephone book apart or something. You can tear individual pages, but you can't tear the whole thing. That seems to be um, what Solomon is talking about here, about one of the advantages of having people in your life. And so it's not good for us to be alone. We have advantages to companionship. In other words, we're not supposed to be spiritual hermits, are we? In fact, I'll remind you that the first person who said it's not good for man to be alone was not Adam. It was not the man. It was God saying that. And so he created um, Eve and started a society here on earth where we relate to each other in family groups and community groups and things like that, tribes and uh, whatever you would want to say. And that is the way it's supposed to be. It just is better we flourish in those type of things. So um, let's talk about this a little bit. And uh, number one, and let's talk about the emptiness of, and again, intentional isolation. That's verse seven through the first part of verse eight. And he talks about this vanity, this emptiness, that there's someone who is alone. He's without a companion and he has neither son nor brother, nobody in his life, whether it is uh, a child or whether it is somebody who is just a family member. He doesn't have anybody like that. He has pulled himself away from all of them. And it seems as though this is something that is happening by choice. This is not something he has no choice about or something that is just thrust upon him that he can't help because there's no sin or nothing wrong in that. Um, but in this particular case, he could, but he just doesn't, okay? And apparently he doesn't want to split the profits. And so in his mind, if I've got somebody here working with me, I got to share this with them and I don't want to do that. And so he doesn't ever get involved in anyone else's life or let them get involved in what he is doing. He doesn't want to be married and uh, he doesn't want to have children because that just means he's got to spend more of his money taking care of a wife or taking care of children or, you know, whatever it might be, whether it's a brother or whatever. And so he doesn't want to support anything like that. And in fact, Solomon points out, and there's no heir. Now, Solomon's point is, 
Why does a guy do that when he's got more money than he'll ever spend, more money than he ever needs, and it's not like he's doing it to build up a college fund or to leave an inheritance or to make sure that his wife is taken care of when he dies. There's nothing there. All he's doing is spending his time working and working and working and working. And what's the real reason for it? It's like somebody said about a rich person when they died, how much did they leave? And the answer, all of it, right? Number two, he talks about the futility of being a workaholic. You know any workaholics? I come from a family of workaholics, and uh, they valued work more than they did sports. They valued work more than they did anything else. You had to be able to work if you were worth anything. The more you could do, the more you were worth, the more valuable that you uh, actually were working with your hands, doing practical things. And sometimes I know my dad and his brothers and stuff would work even when they didn't have to. Work was kind of even their recreation. Everything could be better. They would tinker with everything. And uh, my dad would sometimes <laughs> spend hours and dollars working on something he could have bought at Walmart for three bucks. Uh, but he did it, and he was always working on something like that, and his brothers were the same way. I don't know that they were classic workaholics, but I, I think you and I probably have known those people who would classify as a workaholic. That's all they wanted to do. And Solomon describes this for it, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? Well, this also is vanity, and he says a grave misfortune, because you're missing out on the joy of, well, knowing other people, the joy of hanging around other people, the joy of teaching other people and imparting knowledge to them, the joy of learning from other people, and the joy of just laughing and having fun with other people, um, being lighthearted. Uh, all of these kind of things are what Solomon seems to be pointing to. So again, this isn't the person that is single and they want to get married, but they never find the right person. That, that's a different issue. This is not the person who wants children and can't have children. That's a different issue. This is a person who just wants to live his life because other people borrow, uh, bother him. Other people bug him. Other people get in his way. Other people don't do things right you know, that kind of thing. And he doesn't want to split any of his profits with anybody else. And so he just works and works and works and works, works himself to death. And there's never an end in sight. There's never an end point. There's never a time when he says, uh, I've got enough, or I want to be generous with this, or I want to do something that will outlast last me. It's not like he's building up money for a foundation to cure cancer or something like that. There, there's no indication of that anywhere at all. It's all just purely self-absorbed and purely selfish. You see, we're made to learn and to grow and uh, we follow other people for a while. We were an apprentice to other people for a while. But then there comes a point to where we learn enough to where we can actually start being a giver and imparting this to somebody else instead of just being a taker. Now, I uh, just got a call from my son, Taylor, a little while ago. He was on his way to 
Washita Baptist University because he's been asked by the director of the School of Music there to be able to um, uh, go tonight, this evening actually, as we record this. It's Tuesday, by the way, when we do this. And uh, tonight he's going to be meeting with the students and he and another guy, they, they chose two of them out of the state to go to the campus and to work with those who are majoring in uh, worship and uh, that type of thing. And so I thought that was kind of cool because he has moved from the time when he was working with Brent Andrews at First Baptist Church of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Now he's to the point where they're asking him to come and to share to people who used to be where he is. Well, that's the way life is supposed to be. We follow and we learn and then we grow and then we give, okay? Now, do you see that in these verses that this guy is doing anything like that at all? I mean, look around through the text. Is there even a little hint that this guy is giving back, that this guy is pouring into anyone else? And I don't find it, and I think that's why Solomon says it's a grave misfortune. There was a man I rented a house from, there were several of us that rented this house from him in Stillwater, and he always, he was fun to listen to because he always had stories to tell. Now, he, sometimes he was nuttier than a fruitcake, but he made a statement one time he said, I'm telling you this kind of stuff because I think you guys are smart guys and I want to give you knowledge that I've had in my head all of these years because when I die, all of my knowledge is going to just rot with my brain. Kind of a <laughs> picturesque way of putting it, isn't it? But you know what? He was right. If we don't share it, if we don't pour it into somebody else, what good does it do? And so we think about all of the technology that we have in our world today. Where did that come from? Well, you can trace it back somewhere to a person who kind of had some ideas and some dreams. And maybe he had no way of ever making the technology work, but he had the dream and he imparted that dream to someone else. And that person shared dreams with a multiple of people. And maybe somebody said, well, you know what? Maybe if we did this, we could get a little closer to making the dream come true. And over generation after generation, we go from somebody just dreaming about what would it be like to be able to just make a wheel and travel a little bit quicker than we do on foot to uh, people going to the moon or maybe someday to Mars or communication. Think about what we have in our smartphones that are amazing. Where did all of that start when you trace it back way before Steve Jobs or the guy that he worked with or anything like that? Where did it start? And all of this stuff, it piles up and it, and it picks up speed and momentum. And uh, you know what took you 15 years to learn took another person maybe 15 minutes to learn, and so they can go on and do more than you did. And by the way, isn't that what discipleship is about in the church? Things that we have spent a lifetime learning, we impart to younger people, like Titus 2 says, so that they can learn and they don't have to spin their wheels trying to learn what we've already learned. That's why we get involved, and that's why we share. And so uh, that's one of those things that really seems to be uh, the grave mis 
fortune here because to what he's doing, there's no end in sight. How much is enough? Another dollar, another million or whatever, but there's nothing that he's really doing with any of this for the glory of God. There's no definite why in working so much. You know, uh, self-help people will tell you that you've got to know your why for what you do, and you've got to be able to define your why. Well, think about this. Solomon has told us, this guy's not working for the welfare of the family. I can understand that. If you're trying to put food on your table and you live in times that are uh, impoverished, well, then you have to work more and you have to work longer and you have to work harder and you may have to work multiple jobs. But we all understand that when you have to do that to literally put food on the table. Um, he didn't have the why of for the sake of children or grandchildren. If somebody is doing this because they want to better their family or help their kids or grandkids get a good education so they can get a degree and make a better living than what they had, we, we all can understand that. There's a why involved in that. Um, the time or cost in this case is irrelevant because all this guy wants to do is just work and pile it up. And it kind of reminds me of the story of the man that Jesus talked about who kept working, things were prospered, and he was building bigger and bigger barns for no particular reason. And you remember um, that night it was said to him, thou fool, this day thy soul shall be required of thee. And that's when Jesus told us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And that's... Um, what Solomon is talking about, this soulless person who just does all of this, but for no particular reason, especially for the glory of God or the good of others. This is, we accumulate things and we work for things and we do it for the glory of God, loving God with all of our heart and for the good of others because we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so that's kind of a, a theology of wealth and a theology of work that we need to have in our place. This guy is different here. He works simply for the sake of working and he accumulates wealth just for wealth's sake. And uh, there's no time for relationships, friendships, not even for a family, and I'm certain no time for a spiritual family like the church. There's no godly or honorable motive in any of this at all. And again, Mark 8, 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And that's what's happening here. Number three, think about the value of quote unquote togetherness, togetherness. Now there are sometimes people bug me and uh, don't look spiritual because they do the same to you. Sometimes they get in the way. Sometimes they talk too much. Sometimes they don't maybe talk enough. Um, you know, maybe they uh, try to help and they don't really help and all that. That's all part of it though, isn't it? Life is messy and humans are kind of messy and you kind of have to get your hands dirty and you kind of have to be self-effacing and self-sacrificing if you really want to pour into somebody else. I mean, even if you are training a little kid and maybe you do woodworking and you have a son who wants to do woodworking and he's about seven years old, are there some things he can do? Yeah. Are there some things he can learn? You bet there are. It's great. But is he going to do them well? Is he going to do them right? 
No. And he's going to stumble and he's going to cut his fingers and he's going to mess up some wood and uh, distract you from some projects and all of that. But when he's a master craftsman one day, you're going to be very proud of his work. Think about teaching somebody music. You sit down at a piano keyboard and give a child lessons. How, I mean, it's kind of silly right at first, isn't it? Or if you have them in band, you go to that fourth grade band concert and all you hear is squeaks and, you know, snorts and weird sounds and it, you know, barely comes together. There are tempo problems, intonation problems and all of that. And then one of these days they're playing in a symphony orchestra or doing something like that. Uh, This is just the nature of things. And that same thing is true. You get a new Christian and you start teaching them the things of the Lord. And maybe one of the first things you teach them is the books of the Bible. And uh, which means you have to memorize them yourself. And uh, it takes them a while to get that. And then you go over things about what is the purpose of the Bible? What's the purpose of each book? And what's the context? Why did they write this? And why do the things that they say sound weird to us? You know, when we're in 21st century America and they were back, well, in the Old Testament, even before the first century um, A.D. And so things were different and they thought differently and they counted differently and they acted differently about things. And it kind of, you know, throws us off. And it takes time to teach somebody that. and They're not going to be good at it right at first. So number three is the value of togetherness. And what I've described right now doesn't sound very valuable, does it? It does when you see the fruit. It does when you see the harvest later on that comes out of your investment in their life. Now Solomon puts it this way. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up a companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. So uh, here are two guys that are working. They're working hard and they're working by hand. They don't have the machinery that we have. And say that they are cutting wheat or something and they've got that um, uh, big uh, thing. I forgot what they call it right now. My mind just went blank. And uh, they're cutting down that wheat. And two of them are working together and they've got a deadline when they have to harvest the wheat for the landowner. Okay? One of them falls. In other words, he gets hurt. If the guy is working alone, that means all of the work, all of it just came to a stop. If he's got somebody working with him, it means that even if he's hurt, I mean, number one, he can get first aid because he's got a buddy there with him. And maybe then he can go on and start working again. Or if he's unable to work, it means that one guy can go on and maybe finish up the job or most of it instead of the work just coming to a complete halt. And so Solomon is telling us here that whether it's the work of the Lord or whether it's our secular work, we don't want everything to grind to a halt because we die suddenly or because we have a stroke or a heart attack or we're injured or something like that. The work needs to be able to go on. And I think in the work of the Lord, we need to be passing on our work to other people. We need to pray that somebody is interested and willing to do that because two are better than one. Verse 11, if two lie down together, they shall keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And so Solomon tells us that togetherness is valuable because it's better. That's what he says. 
That's the basis of Genesis 2.18, that the Lord said it's not good for man to be alone. It's also valuable because two can accomplish more, and it's also just more enjoyable when you've got somebody you can talk with, somebody you can work with, you, you see the progress doubled or more than doubled, and it's encouraging and motivating to you. And um, it's valuable because of assistance and humility. We all fall down and we need help. It's not always just the other guy, is it? Sometimes it's us and uh, we need somebody else to help us. That's the humility. But we also are available to um, help other people. It's a mutual investment. It's always good when we can make life easier for other people. The work doesn't stop and you can get up and you can continue and all of that. Think about all of the one another's that are in the scripture in the Bible that help us love one another, help one another, serve one another, be kind to one another. I mean, there's a jillion of them in there and those require togetherness in order to do that, don't they? And so there's a value in being together. Number four, let's talk about the victory in accountability and in friendship. And it says in verse 12, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I want you to think about this. You know this to be true. Many spiritual defeats take place in isolation. And there are things that you would not even think about doing if just one other person were around. There are things you sure wouldn't do in public, but you'll do them in private, okay? And that's why isolation can, uh, by choice, can be a bad thing. And with two, there is watchfulness, there is protection, there's accountability, and then there is that synergy thing again. We're stronger together. So when the enemy attacks, it's better to be with somebody. When there's some type of physical harm coming, it's better to be with somebody. You just feel better with somebody and another person can literally and actually help you as it says here. But also too, there are just some things that you might do when you're by yourself, but this person's with me, they're going to think it's weird. They're going to think it's wrong or sinful. They may call me out on it. And uh, I may lose their friendship, so I don't do it this one time. I wonder how many people have been saved from a hard, destructive spiritual fall just because they had somebody there. Might be a wife, might be a husband, might be a child, might be a good friend, whatever it may be. And with three, there is added strength. Think about how we pour into each other's lives and we encourage one another can't tell you how many times being around uh, some of you with your different personalities and different spiritual gifts. When I was, uh, I spoke at the Capitol earlier today and someone said, how do we apply the things you've talked about when we are supposed to keep, to give answers? He said, you know, it's, uh, we have a tendency to say, I just don't want to talk to anybody and I'm going to keep my mouth shut. This could be controversial, except that we're asked and we are supposed to give answers to people. You know, that is certainly true. We kind of feel that particular pressure 
And uh, have you ever noticed that when it comes time to give an answer, when you're by yourself, you feel you kind of stutter, maybe stammer just a little bit, hope you get all of your words right. But when you've got two or three standing around you, how much easier it is to give an answer, how much easier it is to be truthful, how much easier it is not to just lie or compromise or something like that. It's amazing. And think about how many times you could have and would have fallen into sin except there was a group of people there. And uh, when this person asked me, how do we handle this and how do we keep from answering in a wrong way and in an angry way, one of the things I said to them is, well, that just takes time because it's a learned skill. And one of the ways you learn it is by hanging around people who do it well. And I've learned a whole lot by watching some of you, some from the negative, <laughs> and uh, as you have from me, and some from the positive. And you uh, hang around some of these people, this threefold cord where you're with your group, and you learn that there's a better way of doing things, a better way of answering people, a better way of treating people, a better way of... Uh, ministering to people, things you've never even thought of. A threefold cord is not easily broken because there's just added strength. And the chances of all three being wrong is reduced. You know, one person, if I'm there by myself, I can be as wrong as I want to be. And uh, if I got two with me and we're both together, then the chances are decreased unless we're working together. But we get three of us together. There's probably going to be somebody that's going to call us out, right? And so uh, that's least, least you hope so. The threefold cord, it pictures strength. It's hard to break. And it also pictures stability. If you take those arrows and you try to break them, they don't bend like one or two might. And uh, they stay together. And we need that stability. And that's what Solomon is saying. Where do we get this? We get this in relationships that the Lord gives us. So we conclude by saying, as a general rule, we do better in relationships. I know there are some exceptions. Um, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or good morals. However, to purposely isolate yourself and rob others of your investment in time, to rob you of their investment in your life is a big mistake. And that's part of the reason Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. That's why attending church is not the fulfillment of that uh, uh, command. It's interacting with other people and considering them and stirring them up to love and good works. And they do the same for you. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 16 says, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by that which every joint supplies according to the effective working which every part does its share causes the growth of the body in the edifying of itself in love. Never done in isolation, always done in a group. And Proverbs 18.24 says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly 
but there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I believe he's making reference to the Lord himself, who is always with us, up and down, good or bad, he's always with us, and he's faithful to us. And that's the way we are supposed to be to our families, to our spouse, to our friends, and also to our church family so that we can grow together and don't let the wisdom God has given you just go away and evaporate when you die. Pass it on to somebody else. So, not good for us to be alone and function in willful isolation. Now, if you happen to be persecuted for your faith and captured and you're put in solitary confinement, that's a different issue. That's a different issue. If you're put on a deserted island and you're there by yourself, that's a different issue. We're not talking about those. We're talking about willful isolation. So get to know somebody this week. Talk to them. Ask them some questions about their life. Learn and grow from them and be available to do the same for someone else. It's not good to function as a spiritual hermit. Well, thank you for your time and thank you for your diligence in teaching, praying for, and ministering in your class. And for those of you who watch this to uh, keep up with your Sunday school class because you couldn't be there, I hope you can be back. And uh, in the meantime, may the Lord bless you for being diligent. So again, thank you for your time. We'll see you next week. God bless.